If you have a Bible, you can turn in the Old Testament to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 20. We'll read verses 30 through 38. In God's providence, we consider the holy origins of the Son of God in this world. And we have an opportunity to juxtapose it against these unholy origins uh, which characterize everywhere uh, the children of men. Uh, Lend your attention, this is the very word of God. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. It is to this very earth stained with sin and misery that the blessed angel declares one who is wholly different who is unlike those who have come before and yet like unto them in that he is not ashamed to call us brothers. Matthew begins his narrative proper here following the genealogy. Some have seen a parallel between the opening account of Genesis 1 where you get a grand vision of God's creating activity and then Turning immediately to Genesis 2 and 3, you get a more particular account that is related to what has gone before. In a similar way, Matthew here picks up on the unusual statement in verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ, is an unusual set of phrases. And Matthew here undertakes to unpack what it was, what took place behind that unusual set of phrases. So we begin with verse 18 and we read to the end of the chapter. Lend your attention, this is the very word of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, 
Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to it. Join me in prayer. Father, your word endures forever. Not a jot or a tittle of it will fall void. It goes forth and accomplishes the very purpose which you intended. We know these things to be true and ask, Lord, that they would have their purpose unto life for us, your people. That you would be pleased to build us up. That you would be pleased to encourage us. That you would be pleased to set forth the excellencies of of who you are on display. In the Lord Jesus Christ, who abhorred not the virgin's womb. Who came unto this earth, exalted by highest heaven. Yet meek and mild, true son of Mary, but your eternal begotten son. We would see him, and seeing him we would love him, Lord. We know that this is a product of heaven, a product of your spirit, that you are pleased to work by your word. And so we ask that you do that very thing, exalting your name and edifying us, your people. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Legend has it that Alexander the Great was the child of Zeus, conceived by a lightning bolt, which lit up the womb of his mother, Olympias. You guys all read Plutarch's Lives, right? Mm -hmm. He's not the only one who finds his origin from the gods. There's any number of sordid tales about the gods and their desires for human women, or even goddesses taking human men unto themselves and yielding remarkable offspring. Such is the case for Hercules, Romulus, Achilles, Alexander the Great, just to name a few. What's the difference between those tales and Matthew's account? What's the difference between their origin and the earthly origin of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's perhaps one place to start. Even if you grant the silly legend some sort of truth, 
those figures still found their beginning in the womb. The Lord Jesus Christ, we meet one who came down from heaven. Heaven's king come to earth. It's going to be a theme throughout Matthew's gospel. The inhabitants of heaven recognize this one. This man. This one who is plainly more than a man. The angels recognize him. The stars recognize him. Those inhabitants of heaven. The demons recognize him. Those dark inhabitants of heaven. Only earth doesn't recognize him. <laughs> because there is no room for heaven on earth. There's no room for heaven's king on earth. It's not the only difference, though. Those other tales just feel silly. A lightning bolt. That's how she was impregnated. It's ridiculous. And that's like one of the better ones. <laughs> the rest of them are portraits of the lust of the gods. I have to have that woman. Trickery of the goddesses. I will have that man. What would be shameful on earth is exalted among the pagan tales. Of their so-called God heroes and their doings. Mark the feel of Matthew's account. It's pure, modest, chaste, delicate. There's a discretion to it. There's a sobriety to it. Did you feel it? It's just a simple, unapologetic telling of what otherwise would be unbelievable. Because make no mistake, the incarnation is otherwise unbelievable. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. What? Hail the incarnate deity. Those other figures were demigods. Maybe they were closer to the gods than men, but they weren't gods. True God and true man. Matthew doesn't use the phrase son of God, but I don't know that you could think up a better narrative to communicate that this one is the true son of Mary, is the adopted son of David, but is very plainly the son of God. The Christ of God. But perhaps more than anything else, what distinguishes them is Matthew's telling the truth. Matthew's relaying history. The Christian church from the very beginning, incidentally, among whom Mary lived with the Apostle John when this narrative was circulating. The one who experienced it intimately was one of them as the stories were being told. Go ask her. Go, go, go ask John who took her into his home until the very end. Matthew says, it is remarkable, but it's true. Luke says the same thing. It's remarkable, but it's true and it's not unprecedented because Matthew roots it 
Not just in the revelation of the angel, but in scripture itself. It wasn't a late development. It was what God said he was going to do from the beginning as he brought his surprising blessing to pass upon earth. But that's not the only thing going on here. It's not just the account of an astonishing origin. It's also the account of an astonishing response. Interestingly, Matthew pays a lot of attention to Joseph. He's not really interested in Mary. Mary kind of falls into the background. And compare Luke's account where Luke brings the great matriarchs to the fore. Matthew's more interested in presenting Joseph as a new patriarch. A new Abraham. A new Jacob. A new Judah. His response is astonishing, isn't it? And Matthew is making the point to say this figure is remarkable. His origin is remarkable. His whole life is remarkable. His end is remarkable. His words are remarkable. His promises are remarkable. Everything about him is remarkable. But he's also controversial. He's, to use the word of Christ, scandalous. He will scandalize many. His beginning is scandalous. Will he scandalize you? Does he scandalize you? Blessed are all who are not scandalized by the Son of Man, Jesus says. Not scandalized by his resurrection as he enters into glory. Not scandalized by his cross as he laid down his life for sinners. Not scandalized by his life as he challenges us to our very core about the things that we love and pursue and what we've forsaken. Not scandalized in his birth which is unlike any other birth that has ever been. Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. At the very outset of the gospel, Matthew says, the virgin birth, are you ashamed of it? If you are, you're going to have greater problems than that. For this one is remarkable, but he's scandalous. What say you? We see in Joseph the anticipation of that humble response that says, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we meet this remarkable king and his origins this morning and the response which Matthew would have us all make, which is, Thy will be done. So let's consider this morning first the announcement of this remarkable king. Second, the purpose of this remarkable king. And third, responding to this remarkable king. First, the announcement of this king. When a king appears, it is common for a herald to go before him. Here we meet two heavenly heralds of sort. Announcing the greatest work of God. Which is really saying something. The greatest work of God about to commence in heaven's king. First, the angel announces him. Matthew wants us to be astonished by this. As Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Idu! Hine! It's a well 
known Greek and Hebrew particle that says, look, <laughs> this is unusual. This is noteworthy. This is surprising. This is remarkable. Behold, lo, again, consider the silence of heaven for all these long years. Earth had withdrawn from heaven, or heaven had withdrawn from earth. However you want to construe it, things are not well on earth. The greatest kingdom with reference to heavenly matters was Israel, and Israel was darkness. Earth was in its shabbiest state. Not all is well. Behold, an angel. Heaven hasn't abandoned earth. Heaven announces a new work. An angel begins to make these startling announcements. And these heavenly messengers announcing these remarkable tidings, they would have recalled God's earliest interactions with Israel. Abraham, Jacob, Gideon, the bygone days of old. Adorned with the wonders of God. Remarkable happenings. Here are revived and recollected. For he's interacting with his servants in a way that the, the story said that he did. Once upon a time. So the magnitude of God's work in the Lord Jesus Christ is here attended by an appropriately magnificent herald. This new Abraham receiving instruction where to go, where to take his family, where blessing is to be found. But if you can believe it, there's actually a greater herald even still than the angel. More glorious than the angel announcing Christ is that God himself announces the child. That's what Matthew highlights. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. God himself announces the remarkable origins of his son on earth. Scripture is not the word of men. Matthew opens assuming Jesus assumes they all look at the scriptures the same way as the very word of God. Set forth of old and preserved and fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. The angel heralds heaven's king come to earth. Scripture heralds heaven's king come to earth. The birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ are all wonders. They are extraordinary. The entire course is adorned with miracles and singular happenings. Hardly to be believed if they did not rest upon so sure a foundation as this. Announced by heaven, foretold of old, recorded for us by God's Spirit. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Peter and Susan are in a conundrum. Lucy is reliable. She's trustworthy. She never lies. But she's going on about finding a strange world in a wardrobe. <laughs> what are Peter and Susan to make of this? 
Edmund, who's a scoundrel at the beginning of the book, says that she's off her rocker. Such a thing isn't to be believed. So Peter and Susan go to the professor. The professor says, well, is your sister a liar? (laughs) They say, no, she's actually quite trustworthy. Well, then there must be a world in a wardrobe, she, he says. <laughs> he said, that's impossible. He says, no, it's not impossible. She's a trustworthy witness, and she's telling you that this is true. Therefore, there's a world in the wardrobe. What are they teaching children in school these days, he muses. You can ask our vice headmaster. The question is not, is the virgin birth possible? The feeding of the 5,000, is it possible? The walking on water, is it possible? The resurrection from the dead, the ascension into heaven, is it possible? The question isn't, is it possible? The question is, has God said it has taken place? Has God said it will take place? Even surer than your perception of what can be is God's word of what is. You could tweet that if you want. Don't go on Twitter. Even more sure than your perception of what can be is God's word of what is. The child of her womb is from the Holy Spirit. I'm sure you've encountered people who have said, Unless God does such and such, I'll never believe. If he were to cure me of this, or free me from that, then I'll believe in him. It's astonishing that sometimes God condescends to these proud and haughty demands. That's what he did in Thomas, wasn't it? Unless I put my fingers there, I'm not going to believe him. And he said, all right, go ahead, touch my side, touch my hands. But far more often, the case is like the arrogant rich man in Luke 16, who is passed into perdition and who pleads with Father Abraham an extraordinary act so that his brothers might believe. Send someone from the realm of the dead, and then they'll believe. Then they'll be spared my terrible fate. To which Abraham says, It's not a matter of clear testimony. It's not a matter of clear proof that they're lacking. It's a matter of blind and hard hearts rejecting the plain testimony of God. Beloved, the truth is not unclear. Neither in special revelation or general revelation. The problem is with us. That we're blind and dead and in love with the things of this world such that we have no room for heaven's king left to ourselves. Praise God, he comes for a specific purpose. To save us from that very plight. So we can consider next his purpose. In the announcement, the angel states Jesus' purpose, his his aim, his his goal, his mission. Jesus is a mission. That's significant. He, 
He came to do something. Again, he came, right? We don't talk about our birth that way. I didn't make my way from the imaginary regions veiled by my mother's womb. My mom and dad are here this morning. You can ask them. <laughs> I was born. Jesus came. He was sent. He didn't begin here, so to speak. Something unique did begin here, but he didn't begin here. The person of the eternal Son of God did not begin here. The person of the eternal Son of God took to himself a true body and a rational soul here to accomplish something specific, which is what the angel says. Matthew records, you will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. His name and his purpose presses God's blessing home upon our hearts. Names are important. Ask any of our expecting parents if they see eye to eye on names at this juncture. Perhaps they do not, because each party feels that the name is important, it's significant, it's worth fighting for, hopefully with charity and grace and dignity. Let me counsel you as your pastor and as one who is currently embroiled in a name battle. <laughs> Make sure you fight fair. You've got to live with that person. <laughs> Sometimes you give the baby a name and it feels wrong, so you change it. You know, you get a feel for the person vis-a-vis -vis the name. In Watership Down, we meet General Woundwart. You can give you a guess whether he's a good guy or a bad guy. In the Two Towers, you meet Ugluk, captain of Suriman's orcs. In the Once and Future King, you meet Mordred, who's plotting the demise of Arthur. Ugly names. Ugly bearers. Same books, you have Hazelrod, probably a good guy. <laughs> Aragorn, Arthur. Names that attest wearers who are closer to light and loveliness than their counterparts. Here, heaven delivers the most beautiful name you'll ever hear. No, not Maria. Jesus. Yesu. Yehoshua. The sound itself is gentle. It's like a mother's hush. Shh. It's okay. Yehoshua. Yesu. Shh. My child. All will be well. It's a gentle flow of syllables, a brook from lung to tongue, and yet the water contained therein is mightier than life itself because the name means Yahweh is salvation. Salvation is sure, for none can contend with Yahweh. For who is like Yahweh in heaven or on earth? We're reminded in the very name that salvation must come from the Lord. If any are to be saved, Yahweh must save. 
If any are to be delivered, God must act. For what is our true plight? What are we saved from? He says it plainly. Sin. An offense against heaven. Sin's guilt, which has rendered us culpable, responsible under the threat and promise of judgment. Sin's stain upon our soul, which corrupts and enslaves. Sin's consequences, which have gotten out of control and that we live in a world of woe, a state of sin and misery. If any good is going to come, if anyone's going to be snatched from this plight, God must act. Yahweh is salvation. We're reminded that salvation must come from the Lord. But we're also reminded that salvation does come from the Lord. For Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us. God has promised to save. This is the summation of those promises. This is the realization of those promises. I will be your God. You will be my people. And I will dwell with you. He says, that's what I'm going to do. In the entire history of Israel... It's full of this question, how? You are holy. We are sinful. How can we be near you? How can we, stained and defiled and polluted and corrupt, stand before you, the Holy One of Israel, eternal, immortal, who dwells in unapproachable life. And then Matthew 1 opens and plain as day says, Jesus, that's how. This is the resolution. God, man, Jesus Christ. That's the solution to the riddle. This one brings us near. This one brings God near. This one saves from sin. This one brings sinners near. If Jesus' name reminds us that heaven must save, Emmanuel reminds us that heaven delights to save. Heaven is pleased to save. There's great comfort to be taken from these names, is there not? It means he knows you're a sinner. It means for this very reason he came to lay down his life for sinners. His salvation was going to come at a remarkable cost, the cost of his precious life, agony and pain indescribable. What moves him? What moves him to, to pay such a cross, to yield such a price? We can answer this in a number of different ways, but verse 21 invites us to answer it by saying, because we're his people. For he came to save his people from their sins. See, they, they belong to him already, even before he purchases them. They belong to him. They're the object of his affection. They're the object of his saving mission. They are his sheep for whom he lays down his life. Or to use the language later in Matthew's gospel, it's because we are his brothers. One of my father's favorite lines from any movie is a brother's love is a brother's love. A brother's love 
is a brother's love. It's a unique love. It's a powerful love. It's a love which drives the Lord Jesus to lay down his life in the stead of sinners. Mark the comfort from these names. And mark the comfort from that phrase, his people. It brings us to one of the more contentious doctrines in Christian teaching, does it not? It's not surprising that such a doctrine would be contentious, for the enemy would sow confusion over the truth of God to deprive God's people from comfort. Whom does Jesus save from sin? Whom has he come to save from sin? His people. Those who already belong to him. Those whom the Father has given him to save. It doesn't say it explicitly, but this is the reformed teaching of the eternal covenant between the members of the Trinity, whereby the Father says that my glory will be on display in you, my Son, ransoming these sinners whom I give to you. Everyone the Father gives to me, the Son saves. There's great comfort to be had from the doctrine of, whether you call it limited atonement or effective or efficacious atonement, the particular atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's great comfort in that because if you belong to Christ, this is no last minute development. This rests on no thin foundation. You were given to the Son by the Father for the Father's glory to be revealed in the Son's forgiveness of you. Purchase of you. Cleansing of you. The particularity of that phrase is a world of comfort, beloved. If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the realization of a promise and a pact from before you or I can even conceive of. <laughs> Time immemorial. But for those who do not yet believe, don't stumble over those words. <laughs> Rather, come to him and prove that you are his people. Prove that you are one of his own, for he turns away none. This will be plain throughout his whole gospel. He says, come to me, come to me, come to me. I cleanse, just let me get a hold of him. He cleanses, he forgives, he heals, he can give what nobody can give. If I could just, just, just grab onto him, I'll be made a participant in that. Come to him, that's what he's here for. To glorify God in the redemption of sinners. To glorify God in the salvation of sinners. We have nothing to commend ourselves. We have empty and defiled hands. Christ came to cleanse and to fill those hands with himself. This to the glory of God. How could such a gospel be scoffed at? How could such a message be mocked, derided, scorned? Has someone come up or encountered a better alternative? Has someone encountered a naysayer that said something more original than that can't be? It's too good to be true. Or something along those lines. And then have given you a positive alternative to man's plight. 
the existential ache that you feel in your soul, as you have a sense that you're not just clay, a meat computer, as one of the arrogant naysayers said. You have a sense that you're more than that. I've yet to encounter it. I haven't encountered everything under the sun, but I've yet to encounter that. Why would such a message be mocked, derided? Well, the explanation that scripture gives is because we're married to another king. And so we hate any contenders. Matthew's gospel makes it plain. It's because there's no room on earth for heaven. There's certainly no room for heaven's king. Not all respond to this glorious message of truth as they ought, but some do. And that's what we see in Joseph, anticipating the right response to the king. Joseph anticipates the response that Christ is going to call for in the face of the dilemma of Christ. In the face of the scandal of Christ. Jesus, by virtue of his very present on earth, is going to deeply scandalize the world. And we see that already here. He's the true son of God. He has no earthly father. His origin is plain, but it is offensive and problematic and is going to cause trouble. We hymn it now. We hymned it this morning. We're going to hymn it again. <laughs> Him, H-Y-M-N, not H-I-M. We're going to hymn it. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead. See, we delight to hymn it, but not all hymn it. <laughs> In fact, it's a minority hymn, but it's anticipated here in Joseph. Matthew profiles that. He says, Joseph was a righteous man. What does he mean by that? Joseph was a righteous man. We're, we're troubled by that. We try to go to the Protestant categories immediately. It means he had the active obedience and passive obedience of Christ imputed to him. Well, that's true, but that's not what he means here. <laughs> he doesn't mean here explicitly that he was counted righteous by faith alone. He means that heaven wrought in him a righteousness greater than the scribes and Pharisees. That's what Matthew means. It was a righteousness wrought by faith. It was a righteousness wrought by heaven. It was not a righteousness that can withstand the scrutiny of God which will justify, but it is a righteousness which will demonstrate truly on the last day that Joseph had true participation in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he means here. And he anticipates the greater righteousness that he's going to tell his disciples about. Notice the juxtaposition here about practicing one's righteousness in public that Jesus castigates later. And Joseph's desire to simply, quietly do what's right. And he's not just concerned about minor matters of the law, Joseph. This is not a debate over the washing of hands. This is not a debate over the exact specification of what can and cannot be done on the Sabbath. Mary did not violate a matter of tithing mint and dill and cumin. He's concerned with the weighty matter of the law here. 
the engagement would have been legally binding. They were, for all intents and purposes, married. And the heartbreaking reality that Joseph was confronted with, not unreasonably, was that his betrothed was unfaithful. And yet he wasn't concerned with practicing his righteousness before the world better than Judah. What did Judah do when Judah found out that Tamar was with child? Bring her out, let's stone her. A better Judah. Quietly. For he knew what the Lord Jesus Christ would labor to teach. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. If you knew what that meant, you wouldn't be quabbling over these things. Quibbling. Joseph anticipates the greater righteousness which Christ himself is going to supply to his followers. In that he is, he's dealing well with the substantive matters of the law. But not only that, he's dealing in mercy and compassion. Not desiring to exalt himself in the eyes of men. But willing to be wronged even publicly. Knowing that his own reputation is going to suffer. But he wants to make sure that Mary is not harmed beyond what is inevitably going to take place. Dare we say it, he is a good man. He's a good man. He's not a perfect man, but he's a good man. He's a product of heaven, but he's still properly designated a good man. Would we withhold that from him? Joseph's obedience is remarkable in this. Joseph doesn't say a word in Matthew. Joseph doesn't say a word in Matthew. That's stunning. <laughs> Considering what the stakes were into which he was enmeshed. Throughout the entire ordeal, he demonstrates that heaven does produce a greater righteousness than this public spectacle of righteousness. A true obedience from the heart in faith at cost. That's a good definition of the greater righteousness. A true, not perfect, a true obedience from the heart by faith at cost. That's what Jesus is going to call his disciples to throughout his entire earthly ministry. And it's what he alone can bring to pass in hearts that would otherwise reject heaven's king. And the glories of this reign. Joseph deserves. Deserves our awe. Not as one who justifies us. But as a fellow servant. Who knows and knew. Less than we are privileged to know. About this one who summons us. Unto faith and obedience. Joseph wasn't scandalized. Joseph, above everyone else, had reason to be scandalized by Jesus Christ and his intrusive presence into his life, which is going to command him not just to take a woman who's going to raise some questions about his character, but flee to Egypt, return to Israel, move to Galilee, all of it because he believed the Lord. And it was counted to him as righteousness. And it also worked in him a righteousness that is a product of heaven, but a true possession of Joseph.
Blessed are all who are not scandalized by heaven's king. Blessed are all who sincerely follow him by true faith at real cost. May such be true of all of us. Let's pray. Father, sanctify us by your word. Your word is truth. Humble us, orient us aright to the glory of your kingdom and its righteousness that we may properly seek it, that we may trust ourselves entirely unto heaven's king come to earth to whom all authority belongs, who alone can forgive sins and who alone can give true life. May he be our hope, our king and our Lord now and always by faith and one day by sight. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.